0: History, according to Luke 20, Part Three, spoken by Pastor Peter The past probably 14 and a half to 15 months, we've been in this great study of the Gospel of Luke. And if you know this, you've been learning. We've been learning in the past 15 months or so the life of Jesus. We see firsthand the miracles that God sort of bless Jesus with so that he can provide miracles and do miracles during his three and a half years of ministry during that time. And so we've been sort of eyewitnesses of that as we've been looking through the Gospel of Luke. We also see Jesus's affinity and his passion and heart for the poor and the oppressed. In fact, his mission, he says in Luke 4, is that he's come for the poor and the oppressed, the prisoners, the widows, to set the captives free. He's come to love on the prisoners as well. And we find that really much of Luke chapter, uh, the entire Gospel of Luke is really the summation of Jesus living out that vision of him serving the poor and the oppressed and how he bids us to do the same. And we find just chapter after chapter, verse after verse, Jesus teaching us of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, what it means to be a disciple, a follower of God, and how much that sometimes contrasts with the Jewish leaders of the day. We are now in the section of the Gospel of Luke towards the end where it's called the Passion Narratives. And in the Passion Narratives, this focuses on the last week of Jesus' life. And we are in the season of Lent. So it's just kind of, it's kind of apropos that we're here in the section of Luke. And what we find here in this section is that in the last week of Jesus' life, there is no more miracles that you and I will witness in this Gospel. The only miracle that we will see is when God raises Jesus Christ from the dead. And that Jesus had nothing to do with that miracle. That was all God and the Holy Spirit. You're not going to even see Jesus ministering to the poor and the oppressed. You won't even see that in this passage that we're going to look at and the passages to come as we finish up this amazing gospel in the Bible. What we see here in the last week of Jesus' life, and what you and I will begin to learn is we will learn more of his divine authority, his lordship, and we will learn deeper of his humanity in the last week of his life. And so it's exciting, it's riveting, because we're going to see some things about Jesus that we have not seen in previous chapters. And today, Jesus, what he is going to do is that he's going to teach us what it means to declare him as our Lord. Do you know what the theological word Lord means today? Do you know the significance of that word and how it can impact and transform your life if you can utter that word out of your mouth today? What is the definition of Lord? And if Jesus is our Lord, how can we live for this Lord of ours? That's what he's going to teach us today. So if you have your Bible, so with me, Luke chapter 20. I'm going to go through section by section, Luke chapter 20. Here's what we're going to look at, verses 41 and following. Then Jesus said to them, Why is it said that the Messiah is the son of David? David himself declares in the book of Psalms, this is Psalms 110, he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David calls him Lord, how then can he be His son. This is one of the most favorite identifications of the Messiah amongst Jewish people during Jesus' day. They love to associate the Messiah as the son of David. And so Jesus now, he goes deeper into this to reveal who he is to the teachers of the law. And what he's doing here is that he's helping them to understand that their understanding of the son of David is incomplete. And so he's trying to help them to understand this by quoting a very famous psalms in 110... Verse 1, which is the most popular Old Testament passage used in the entire New Testament. Jesus quotes it here. We find that it's in the book of Acts. It's also all over Paul's letters. It is a very popular text because it teaches us a little deeper of who Jesus Christ is. The problem with this text and the reason why the teachers of the law were really confused about what Jesus was saying here. I don't know if, if you caught it because it's kind of confusing. Jesus is saying if the Messiah is the son of David, why does David call his son Lord? It's going to be a cold day in hell before I call my son Lord. <laughs> I am not. If my son ever says, Dad, call me Lord, I will smack the Lord out of him. All right? <laughs> Seriously. Jesus saying, if David, if the Messiah is the son of David, this king that you're waiting for, If he is the son of David, then why does David call him Lord? That's the question that he's posing to the teachers of the law. And what he's doing here is that he's helping them to understand the profound truth of who Lord is. That Jesus Christ is the Lord. He is the one who is sitting in God's right hand, which is a key thing. It's not just an importance of proximity that he is with the Father. That's not just it. But what it, what it details for you and I, for us to see, is that this is a person who's been given divine authority by God to do ministry on this earth. That is what Lord means here. And Jesus is saying that this son of David that they like to associate the Messiah to be, he's saying that I am the Lord. Jesus Christ, the son of David, is the Lord. And the title of Lord, literally what it means, is that Lord is somebody who has been given divine authority by God so that he can be God's royal agent. That is the title of Lord. Now, Lord can have a lot of different meanings. Back in the old days, it meant sir, that you would address a dignitary as sir, right? But the theological significance of the word Lord is someone who has been given divine authority, the divine authority by God, this someone who is sitting at God's right. Hand. That is our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus Christ is somebody who is sitting at God's right hand because He came, He died for us on the cross, resurrected from the dead, and we know this. Now He is sitting in God's right hand, and He's been given divine authority to do. The work of God. Jesus now is answering the teachers of the law by what authority he's doing these things. Remember earlier in chapter 20 when Doug preached this message a couple weeks ago? The teachers of the law said in verse 2 of chapter 20, they said, tell us by what authority you are doing these things. Who gave you this authority? Jesus is now providing them the answer by what authority he's coming with. He's coming with the very authority of God. He is Lord. He is Messiah, and that is the declaration that he's making. So then the question that you and I have to ask is knowing that Jesus has been given the divine authority by God, that he's sitting at God's right hand, what's his primary function? What's his JD? What's his job description? The primary function of Jesus as Lord is having authority to minister God's grace to you and to me. That's his job. When you and I declare Jesus Christ as our Lord, what we are saying is that he is the minister of God's grace. Amen? That is why you and I should declare him as our Lord. Because it is this Lord that ministers, administers the very grace of God upon your life and upon my life. And we desperately need the grace of God in our lives. We need, I don't know about you, but I need ample amounts of God's grace in my life. And the only way that's going to happen is if I declare him as my Lord because that is the primary function of what the Lord does. That's why he's sitting at God's right hand. Why? Is it just because he has the title? No, it's because he is now in charge of distributing God's grace to the people of God. Therefore, Jesus is our judge, and he will determine whether you deserve to receive God's grace or whether you don't deserve to receive God's grace. Now that's huge. Let's just unpack this theologically. For our salvation... Basically what that word means is that for us to enter into this relationship with God initially, for us to have life after death, that is nothing that you and I could ever do and work towards to receive that. That is all about you and I coming to grips with the reality that Jesus died for us on the cross, resurrected from the dead, and he is our Lord. When we declare that, Jesus gives us an overflow of God's grace. So now what happens is not only is our name written in the Lamb's book of life, but what happens now is that we are able to enter into a relationship with the very God who created us. Amen? Amen? That's grace. But if you want to experience perpetual grace in your life, it has everything to do with how you're living your life. And so you can't just wonder where God might be. You got to really ask yourself am I really living for God? Because Jesus has no problems in ministering his grace to the people who call him Lord, and who are willing to live like that. He is our minister of grace. If we opt to ignore him, we're turning our backs on the divine authority, and we will not receive God's grace. And that's what we're going to learn in this text. Our responsibility to our Lord Jesus Christ is greater than anyone on earth that we have. Our responsibility to Jesus is greater than any job that you and I can have. Our responsibility to Jesus is greater than anything else that we might have here in this world that we're responsible for. Therefore, the posture that you and I are to have as Jesus being our Lord is this posture of a servant. That is the posture that God wants you and I to approach him as, that we are his servants. Now, listen, some of you are thinking, "Eh, yeah, no, I've heard that before. But this whole being God's servant, I don't. I don't know. And you know, when I was in my early 20s, I grew up in the church. There was a part of me where I just felt like, you know, man, maybe it's it's boring being a follower of God. You kind of feel like, you know, you want to just kind of have this freedom, and you think it's freedom to just go and and be free to sin. You just want to have a few years of that. Just I just want to have a few years. Just want to go wild. I want to live my life. I want to have some freedom from God. Listen, that's the greatest lie of the enemy. There is no such thing as freedom to sin. You've already been given a lot of freedom. You already have a natural sort of a, 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 a way to want to sin all the time because of our brokenness. That is bondage to sin. And you can think you're going to be living a free life if you just go and live the life that you want to live, but you were never meant and you were never created to live that kind of life, to live it completely independent of God Himself. We're called to be his servant and that there's true freedom in knowing that we are a servant of Jesus Christ. And that's why when Paul starts off all of his letters, what does he say? He says, I, Paul, am a servant of Jesus Christ. I, Paul, am a slave to Jesus Christ. They're all the same word in the Greek, that we are a servant of Jesus Christ. Because when we approach ourselves as a servant to this Lord, then we receive his grace upon our lives. So you have to realize today that you are a servant of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, there is nothing more freeing that you can experience today in your life when you declare that you are his servant. So if Jesus then is our Lord, if he is the minister of God's grace, that he will pour out God's grace upon our lives, then how are you and I to live so that we can position ourselves in such a way where we can receive massive amounts of God's grace? grace all right the first thing we see in this passage that we're going to look at now is that jesus is our lord when we are aware of our pride and we do something about it jesus is our lord when we are aware of our pride and we do something about it look at luke 40 looking at 45 verses 47 while all the people were listening jesus said to his disciples beware of the teachers of the law They like to walk around in flowing robes and love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. They devour widows, houses, and for a show make a lengthy prayer. These men will be punished most severely. What is the definition of pride? Pride is a feeling or a deep pleasure or a satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. That's what pride is. Pride is when you and I get a deep sense of satisfaction and a gratification in our achievements. And we find that these teachers of the law struggled with pride. And here's the danger you have to be aware that you're prideful today. And every single one of you in this room, including myself, we're all prideful. Do you know that? We all have pride. It is is one of the most brokenness things, the broken state of our humanity, that we have a sense of pride. And it was so with the teachers of the law. They had such pride that they loved wearing these ornate robes, walking around Jerusalem and those things. They craved respect from other people, right? They loved to flaunt their spirituality by praying these long prayers in the synagogues. They loved to sit at places of honor at banquets and in the synagogues because they loved that kind of respect, that kind of honor. They took a personal sense of satisfaction from their own achievements. They were not aware of their pride. They had no idea that they were prideful, and that's the reason why they could do nothing about it. When you are not aware of your pride, the dangerous thing about this is, is that you can't do anything about it. You don't have a choice then to do battle with your pride. So you have to know that you're prideful. We're all prideful in some ways. And i got to be honest with you, I am so prideful. I struggle with it so much. When I was 22 years old, I graduated from college, worked in the marketplace, and I was a devout Christian. I was, cha- I, I was asked to speak at a sixth, seventh grade retreat. At my home church, I was like, wow, okay. I didn't even think about going into ministry then. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll do it. And so I did. But one of the things you got to know about me is this. I love to win. I hate losing. This 11-year-old challenged me to a push-up contest during our free time. <laughs> and I want you to know I destroyed him. I should have been the bigger person. He's like, he's 11. You don't want to beat an 11-year-old. It might mess him up psychologically. Those are the prime years of his development, right? But he challenged me. And if you challenge me, I don't care how young you are, I'm going to beat you. (laughs) And so I not only beat him, I got him disqualified because he wasn't doing the right push-ups. He was doing the worm. You know what the worm is? Like when when your pelvis area, your butt's like hitting the ground first before your chest is. I didn't care. Why? Because I have a deep sense of satisfaction of my own achievements. I do. I don't care how young you are. I will beat you if you challenge me. Or at least I want to beat you. It's bad. When I was in seminary, it was the first time I ever took a lot of pride in my grades. It really was. The only time in my life I ever cared about my grades. So I studied so hard. I wanted a 4.0 GPA. I didn't graduate with that. And one of the reasons why is because my last year, I took a lot of pass-fail class. Why? Because I could. You're allowed to do that. And so I signed up for a church history class. I took a pass-fail And when you take a class pass-fail, you don't have to study a lot. You just have to study enough to pass, to get a C. And that's all I did. I studied enough to get a C. And when I got my report card and I saw the grade C on there instead of a P, I flipped. I went to the uh, registrar's office and I said, what's going on here? You know I took this thing pass-fail. And she said, you took too many pass-fail classes before. You're maxed out. So we had to give you a grade on this. I said, that's not fair. You should have told me that. If you did tell me that, I would have studied harder. I got so angry. I went to my my dean of theology, and I sat with him, and I said, you got to talk to the administration's office and get him to change this grade to pass field. you got to make that exception for me because I want to graduate with a real high GPA. And he just looked at me and said, listen, I can't do that. I was so angry. Why? Because of my pride because I get a lot of satisfaction from my own personal achievements. I fought with my wife this week, and even till this day, I still like to be right. I like to win the fights. I like to articulate my understanding of a situation so well that she has nothing to rebuttal me with. I love to do it. I still struggle with pride. I struggle with pride. Do you? Do you even know that you're prideful today? The scary thing about what Jesus is doing here is that he's saying the reason why pride is so toxic is that because we elevate ourselves, because we're so self-consumed with ourselves, and then everyone then becomes sort of a means to an end. Everyone becomes sort of this person that you can use for your own benefits. They become a pawn in your own life. And guess what? It's not just other people, but it's God as well. God becomes a pawn. Why is pride so destructive in our relationship with God? Why is it so destructive? Because you'll never declare him as your Lord. You'll never see him as as God that you want to worship. You'll always see him as somebody who should should be serving you and your own purposes in your life. That's why pride is so destructive. Because when you and I struggle with this constantly and we don't do any battle with our pride, then we constantly believe that even God has to serve us and everyone else has to serve us and we can use them for our own purposes. You know how destructive that is? Why would God bless you with his grace if we struggle like that? Why would God want to bless you with his mercy and grace when you struggle with that kind of pride? When I struggle with that kind of pride, do you realize why God then doesn't reject some of us? Sometimes because we struggle with that reality, that we don't see him as our Lord, and as a result of that, God won't pour out his grace upon us. It's not that God doesn't love you. It's because you don't love God the way he needs to be loved. That's why he doesn't pour out his grace upon your life. It's because you are bigger than God and you expect everyone else to kind of worship you. You elevate yourself at that level. And that's exactly what these teachers of the law were doing. Because they struggle with pride and nobody confronted them. And, and this is the scary thing about pride. You will have no love when you have pride in your life. Because nobody will love you enough to share truth about who you are. Why? If I mean, get this. Listen. The older I'm getting, my priorities are so different now in my 40s than when it was in my 20s and my 30s. In my 20s and 30s, I just wanted to conquer the world. That's all I wanted to do. But now that I'm in my my mid-40s, I'm realizing that what really is important is love and relationships with people. That's the most important thing in my own life. That is the greatest thing of worth for me. My relationship with God, my relationship with my family, my relationship with my friends, my close friends. That's important to me. But you know, like, you're not going to experience those kinds of relationships if you're prideful. Because in order for those relationships to exist, you got to be able to receive some truths about how messed up you are. And if you struggle with pride, you know what's going to end up happening? As people share, if they actually have the courage to share, they're not going to share anymore because you're going to rip them for sharing. That's why you're so lonely. That's why you're depressed. That's why as you're in your 40s, you're wondering, is there more to this life? There is more to this life. But you've got to deal with your pride because you're, 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 start, you're becoming a anemic in God's eyes spiritually because he's not pouring out his grace because he can't because God's not your servant. He didn't die for you on the cross to be your, ba- to be your servant, to be your employee. He died for you on the cross and resurrected from the dead so that you can believe in him as your Lord, so that this is the man, this is the one who administers God's grace to you. So what these Pharisees were doing, what these teachers of the law were doing, was that because they struggled with pride and nobody told them about it and called them out, they kind of hid behind their spirituality. And what they did was that they should have had a heart for the vulnerable people and the poor people. Widows were the most vulnerable people in society back in those days. And because they knew the Old Testament, they had no excuse. They knew how much God has a heart for the widow. And what happened in the story is this, is that these teachers of the law, they were handling the widow's affairs. Basically what they were doing was that they were robbing them of their money and they were living in abject poverty as a result of these teachers of the law robbing them of their money. And we're gonna look at a story directly after this of how poor they have become as a result of it. These teachers of the law, because they felt like they were God, they were so important that they no longer had a regard for what they were doing to somebody who had nothing. They no longer fear God. Why? Because they are God. They believe they are because people were worshiping them. They were sitting at these great places at the the banquets. They were doing these things, and yet Jesus said, and they have the audacity to offer lengthy prayers in my presence. When I was growing up as a teenager, I attended this small Korean church in Demarest, And it was such a small church that our pastor, the senior pastor, he wanted the youth group to be in the sanctuary with the adults. I hated it because it was in Korean, and and I couldn't, you know, understand it. I couldn't sing the songs in Korean because I couldn't read Korean. And so I just didn't want to be there, but we had to because we had to make the place look a little more full. The only thing I really enjoyed was the prayer time. The reason why was because somebody from the church would always come up and usually would be a leader... And they would pray for the church and offer a prayer. I loved it because they didn't say this, but that prayer time, folks, it was a competition of who could pray better. It was. And so, like, people would come up, and when my father was was asked to pray, he would get, like, weeks' notice. He would work on his prayer. He would read it to my mom, and my mom would give him feedback on what to say to make the prayer better. Because, again, it's a competition, Right? And so you had to get up there, you had to sound eloquent with your words and stuff. And there was this one short little Asian Korean woman. I when she started getting up and she went up to the front, I loved her prayers. The reason why was because man, she was amazing. She would get up there on the pulpit and she would just start off with a very quiet, soft voice, oh Jesus in Korean, juyo, juyo. Just start praying slowly, slowly, slowly raising her voice ever so slightly. And you start to sense the passion that began to start oozing out of her heart. And then she just started yelling and started slamming the pulpit. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. It was just amazing. And then she would just burst out in tears. Every time she came up to pray, this is her normal pattern, she would start bursting out in tears. And I know I should be closing my eyes while she was praying, but I just couldn't because it was so entertaining. And I just looked at her praying, and she kept weeping and crying. And then afterwards, she settled down her tears, settled down her grief, and then she just ended with a quiet amen. After she prayed, I wanted to stand and say, bravo, bravo. I mean, the performance was amazing. And the reason why I knew it was a performance was because this woman was the meanest lady in our church. (laughs) Seriously, she yelled at us every Sunday, would yell at each and every one of us for running, like, in the fellowship hall. We're like, what? Her daughter, her poor daughter, who was a friend of mine, would share how difficult her mom was. She had this ultra-controlling mentality. We went to a a summer retreat as a church, and she didn't trust her daughter. She thought that her daughter was going to leave the room, and we were only, like, in 10th grade and maybe hang out with a guy in our church. So you know what this mom did? She parked her car right in front of her daughter's door, and she stayed there all night and watched her to make sure she didn't leave. You see, the thing about her was that she had a lot of pride, but she wasn't aware of it. And Jesus says about these teachers of the law, They have so much pride, and yet they offer these lengthy prayers. They have the audacity for these lengthy prayers. It's amazing how pride and hypocrisy go hand in hand. Jesus says he is going to judge you and I most severely when we don't do battle with our pride, because we all have it. And how he judges us most severely is simply this. He removes the ministry of God's grace upon your life and my life. And you are just left alone to your own brokenness and your sinfulness. And Metro, there is no hope when all you have is just your brokenness and your sinfulness. When God has removed the ministry of his grace upon your life and my life. You and I have no reason to be prideful. There's nothing that you did that God sent his son to die for you on the cross. Nothing. We have no reason to be prideful in God's eyes. And just beware for any of you out there who are high achievers where you've achieved something because you've, you know, where you achieve all the time because you put a lot of work into it. Beware if that's you, because you struggle with this probably more than others in this room. How do we deal with this? How do we deal with our pride once we recognize it? The only thing that's ever helped me in my life is confessing my sins to someone. That's the only way that I've been able to deal with my pride, is when I confess my sins to someone else. It's the only time. Right, because when you sin, that's a failure, isn't it? You can't get any, you can't grow any pride from your failures. Last week, I was in. um LA, and I was there with Kevin for the first half of the week, we, we connected with some real good church leaders that kind of helped us to understand church, the government of it, and how you run it in a, in a better way, and so it was just a great time for us to go there, but I stayed a couple extra days and hung out with some of my very close friends, and one friend is, is uh, Jeff, you know, he's my soulmate, an officer uh, for Los Angeles, and uh, listen, I've been doing this with him for years, but even till this day, it never gets easy it's still so hard for me to sit down and confess my sins. I would rather hide behind my pastoral title and just kind of answer all of his theological questions that he might have regarding faith and life in general. I love doing those things. But just when it gets time for us to share our sins with one another, it's so humbling. It's so humbling to be so jacked up and messed up. Whenever I want to be prideful, I just have to know that when I talk to this guy, I have no more room for it because God just smashes me with his humility it makes me humble because there's nothing for me to be, hum- to be prideful about because I fail so much. And I lean on his grace, his mercy. It's the only way I can survive. You know, I, th- I wouldn't be married today if it wasn't for the mercy of my wife and grace. Do you know how many times she's forgiven me for terrible things I've done to her? I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that. And that's just human grace. Could you imagine the grace that God wants to provide for you today? How lavishly he wants to uh, blow you away with his grace. And how many of us reject it because of our pride. Because he's because we're more important than him. Humility is the way to go and that's why Paul says he will say I will boast. He says don't boast about yourself. Boast in the Lord and the Lord only. And so while I was in L.A. too, I got together with another friend of mine. And, and he's a CEO of an of a, of a entertainment company out there in L.A. And uh, I've known him for a few years. And, uh, you know, we've had chances to just a to chat. He's a Christian and stuff. But he really wanted to get together with me, which I, I, I thought was unusual because he said he'll do whatever he can to connect with me. And I said, okay, well, let's just meet up. We met up for about two hours eating soup dumplings at, uh, at a great dumpling place, Dim Tai Fung. The one in Florida, the one in Fort Lee is much better in my opinion, okay? But uh, anyway, so we were enjoying this. And in those two hours, this man who was a CEO of an entertainment company, a major entertainment company, started opening up and sharing his brokenness and his sins to me that just floored me. And I'm thinking, I don't know you that well for you to share this. Maybe it's because I'm a pastor. You're sharing this stuff with me. But I said to him, I said, you're different. I sense a sense of freedom in you now. He said, Peter, I don't... I don't know what freedom is anymore apart from me sharing and being open about my sins and about my brokenness. He said, for so many years, I've been hiding behind my title as a CEO. And I thought I would find joy from that. He goes, but true joy, I'm realizing, is for me to be honest and confess my sins to some brothers that I really trust. I just saw the grace of God oozing out of his pores. It was such a beautiful thing to see that there's freedom. Why? Because the ministry of God's grace is at its full capacity in our lives when we can fight our pride by confessing our sins with one another. And so I ask you, what's holding you back? What's holding you back from confessing your sins to one another? You know I talk about this a lot, and I do oftentimes, but what is holding you back from it? It's sad that we still have to hide behind our spirituality. And understand who Jesus is talking to here. He's talking to the teachers of the law. So what does that mean for us? The longer we've been a Christian, the greater our our propensity is to be prideful today. So that's a real strong warning to all of us here. If you've been Christian for a long time, in fact, if you are a leader or you see yourself as a leader and you know a lot of Bible because even Jesus says knowledge can puff up, If you've been a follower for a while, you have a greater propensity to struggle with pride and think you're better than you really are. Where you elevate yourself to such a point where you demean, where you disrespect people because they're beneath you? Right? And so be careful of that. And I want to encourage you and ask you, what's holding you back from being open to sharing? Because if you don't confess your sins to anyone, I don't know if you're experiencing God's grace in your life. Because you certainly aren't seeing him as your Lord that you bow down to and surrender to. The holiest thing or the the path to holiness isn't by what you do, what you don't do, but it's really at the end through your ability to be transparent. That's why when Shirley just came up here and she shared, and she didn't come up here and just put on a happy smile and just be like, welcome to Metro Community Church. She knows that holiness is about transparency. That you can just be who you are. And she was broken. I came to her in the middle of the service. In between first and second. I said, can you do this? I said, I really want you to, but can you do this? Because it seems like it's really heavy in your heart right now. And she said, no, I can't. Because our church is not a church where I have to be like happy, laughing surely all the time. But I can be who I am. See, that's holiness, Metro. Is when you can be transparent and share. I hope that you experience the power of God's grace in your life as you begin to confess the darkest areas to your humanity. There's something so beautiful and rich about being known and not living your life with secrets. See, I have a dark side, I do. But you know my dark side has light in it because I confess it. A lot of you, your dark side has no light because you're unwilling to allow God to enter into it because you're not willing to share. So what's holding you back? Judgment? You're afraid that people are going to gossip about you and judge you? That's not a good enough reason. It's worth taking the chance. It really is. We deal with our pride when we can confess our sins to one another. That's how you will know Jesus Christ as your Lord, who is the minister of God's grace upon our lives. The second and last thing that we learn here is that um, Jesus is our Lord when we give sacrificially. Jesus is our Lord when we give sacrificially. Look at verse 1 of chapter 21. As Jesus looked up, He saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on these two coins were worth about five minutes of labor at minimum wage, okay? So I did the math this week. The minimum wage of New Jersey is $8.60. Five minutes of that labor at eight sixty is $0.43. Cents. I hope my math is correct. If it isn't, just forgive me, all right? All right? This woman put $0.43 cents into the offering basket. Now, when you and I think about $0.43, cents, it's not a lot. Very small. I'm sure the temple didn't miss it. If she didn't put it in, but what does Jesus do? He says she truly gave because she gave sacrificially. She gave out of her poverty, not out of her abundance. It's different here. You see, the widow was in this position of poverty because the teachers of the law were ripping her off. They were stealing from her. And so all she had was these two coins. And you know what's amazing about this? Here are the teachers of the law who are the ones who have authority over the temple. And she still gives the two cup of coins to God through the temple because the temple is still the place where God resides. Let that be encouragement to you to know that when God wants you to give sacrificially is to give to the church first. Because this is the place where God resides. This is the place where Jesus Christ came and died for because the church is a place, is a community of God's people. Right? And so we find here, very, very key with what God sees here. God doesn't count how much you give. He doesn't. Rather, he measures the weight of your giving. God doesn't count how much you give. Because if you're giving a lot because you have a lot, you're not going to miss much of it. Rather, what he does, that he measures the weight of your giving. And so I ask you today, is your giving, does it have weight today? Or does it not have any weight Is it just something that you can just give and just move forward? Listen, if you declare Jesus Christ as your Lord, you got to pay attention to this. Because if you want to receive the ministry of God's grace upon your life, our giving has to be like this widow. It has to have weight. Amen? If you don't want to live your life for God and you just want to live it on your own, then good luck and God bless you with that. But if you want God's ministry and his grace upon your life, if you want God to continue to bless you financially because you know you need his help to help you, Why would God bless you with more grace and ministry when you don't know how to even give sacrificially? You see, when God sent Jesus Christ to die for us, it wasn't how much he sacrificed. It was the weight of his sacrifice. He loved Jesus with all his heart. It was his son. And so the weight of that was huge for God. And likewise, when you and I give, there has to be weight to it, Metro. And if the survey and the research is true today of churches in America, we are sorely failing in this area. God doesn't count how much you give. Rather, he measures the weight of it. You see, when you give, it's not about how much you give, but it's about how much you have left over after you've given. And God wants you and I to do the same. Like this widow, she had nothing. She had only 43 cents in today's currency. She needed that. She could have bought something with it. But she gave it to the Lord because she wanted to declare her God as her Lord. And she wanted to receive the very ministry of his grace upon her life. You see, at the end of the day, God owns everything, doesn't he? He owns everything that you have today. But a lot of you don't see it that way. You see that it's all yours. And you give whatever you have, whatever you want to give. But this is, again, for those who want Jesus to be their Lord. If you want Jesus to be their Lord, if you want to bathe and soak and drown in God's grace today, your giving has to have weight. If it's not sacrificial, then you can't sit here and expect God to shower you with his grace and his mercy today. This widow had nothing. There is no excuse. She had nothing, and she gave everything. And so how do we do that? How do we give sacrificially? How do we have weight to our giving? How do we become like this widow? We have to be willing to give consciously and with planning. 1 Corinthians 16, 1-4, Paul speaks about us setting aside, planning it out, setting aside, and giving God our first fruits. That's important, our first fruits, not our leftovers. A lot of times we just give God whatever we have left over, whatever at the end of the month, or whatever at the end of our pay cycle. But what, what, what Jesus is saying here, what Paul is saying is that we got to be willing to give God our very first fruits, meaning give him the best of what you have at the beginning, not at the end. Because when you give God your leftovers, somehow, all too common, our leftovers mysteriously shrinks inside to take care of things that are not necessities in our life. It happens all the time. I don't know, but it will happen all the time. Because there's always things that we could buy and pay off, right? Giving God our first fruits declares that you know that your provider, your security is not in money, but it's in God. And that you're going to honor everything that you have with God. God wants to lavish his grace upon your life today. He wants you to live into that. But the reason why he's not able to do it is because you're not giving your first fruits to God you're giving your leftovers to him. And as a result of it, you're struggling. And so the base of where you and I are to start for those who want to live their life as Jesus Christ as their lord, is that I want to encourage you to start off at giving 10% to God. That's called tithing, 10%. And then you have to start planning. If I'm going to give 10% of my income to God, then how do I live on the 90? See, that takes planning. That's being conscious. And you gotta sit there and think about that and plan, how can I do that? And then I wanna encourage you, Metro. I wanna encourage you to continue to be sacrificial in your giving. I wanna encourage you to increase your giving by 1% every year. I guarantee you the, you'll never outgive God. You, you can try, but you'll lose every single time if you try. You'll never outgive God. Give that way. You can give by even signing up on our pushpay app through giving recurringly. Over and over. It does every monthly if you want. You can sign up really outside of our doors today at the info table. You can do that today. But at the end of the day, this is about us giving to God, not giving to Him our leftovers, not giving to Him spontaneously, because we do that sometimes. We just give to Him spontaneously. There's nothing wrong with giving God spontaneously, giving to Him spontaneously when you first tithe. Then you can do the spontaneous giving. But if you want to experience God's grace today upon your life, then you know what? You have to be open and willing to give God an offering that has weight. You see, Paul says that you and I are to give cheerfully, that God loves a cheerful giver. The only way you're going to be able to give cheerfully is when you learn to give with weight. Because if you just give out of your abundance, and you know, I think God will appreciate that, but that's just, again, you don't miss what you give because you have a lot more. But when when you give and it has weight to it, and you realize I may have to alter the way I live my life because of what I'm just about to ready to give here today, That's when you get to see God as your great provider. That's when you get to see God to be the one who truly is the minister of grace upon your life. That's when God will begin to bless your dreams and all the life, your life and your relationships that God has blessed you with today. Otherwise, I think we just kind of just live our life according to the way we want to live it. Again, listen, this is up to you. If you wanted to hail Jesus as your Lord. This is a clear example here in this text that we are giving to God. Financial giving to God has to have weight. Jesus says that people who do that will receive his grace. In one sense, at the end, this widow's gift, it didn't, the temple didn't miss it much if she didn't put it in. There were just two copper coins. But what she would have missed at the end was a sense of participation in the community where god is being honored and at the end of the day she would have been the real loser here in the story because her courageous act what it did was that it memorialized what she did and jesus says go and do likewise as well he wants you and i because if we don't do battle with money We are to give, God, our sacrifice of giving should have weight because money is not evil. It's not. Money is neutral, but our love for money is overwhelming, and we get fixated, and we love it so much, and we get so preoccupied with it, and then it ends up being something that we have too much faith in that God does not want you and I to have. Are you doing battle with that? Is your giving to God, does it have weight, or do you just give God your leftovers or whatever you have left at the end of the month? Jesus Christ is your Lord, your giving must have weight. Otherwise, you only live for the American dream. And the American dream is not God's dream for you. It's not. See, the American dream is what? To have the nice house. To have the nice white picket fence. To have and to have. The American dream is for you to get wealthy and you just keep that money for yourself. That's the American dream. Capitalism. That's the heart of Capitalism. That's not God's dream for you. God's dream is that you would see all of your wealth as his. And that if you have an abundant amount, that you would give a lot of it away. So that you would honor God and so that God could be proclaimed. And so that even others and those who are hurting could have an opportunity to have hope in life for one day. That's how God uses the body. It's a beautiful thing. It not only deals with your addiction to money, but at the end of the day, it allows you to see that this is so much bigger than just you. Their lives are being dependent upon you. And some of you, you have the gift to make money. You have the gift to do well financially. And you don't realize that that's a gift that God's given to you. It's not your gift. It's God's gift. Your giving should have weight if you want to receive the grace of God in your life in massive amounts. Twelve years ago, I was fortunate enough to be invited to a, a dinner. Twelve pastors, me being included, was invited to a dinner with Rick Warren. It was a highlight for me. I've always wanted to meet this man. I never was able to. And so, you know, there's Rick, and there's me 12 years ago. And um, when we met up, and he just sat there, and he started just talking, and just the stuff that was coming out of his mouth was just amazing. The leadership wisdom of this guy was like anything I've ever come in contact with. I learned so much. It was like drinking water from a fire hose. That's how much I learned. But the thing that really impacted me the most was this portion when he said to us as pastors, he said, if you are only tithing, you don't know the kind of grace that you're missing out on. And he said that from the moment he started Saddleback, he increased his tithe by 1% every year to the church, even when he had nothing. And he thought there were years, sometimes he thought he was going to outgive God, and he realized every year he lost. God gave him back so much more. Then he wrote that book, Purpose Driven Life, which sold 30 million copies. He never knew it was going to sell that many copies. He said he got millions of dollars from the publishing company because of how much he sold. He said he got scared, but he said he knew that God gave him that much money because he knew that God could trust him. That he wasn't going to use that so that he could continue to grow the American dream. He still lived in the same house. He said he still drove the same Ford Explorer that he had. He didn't buy a new car, a new boat or anything. But he ended up giving a lot of that money away to the church and to the things of God. And now if you know anything about him, you know that Rick tides 90% of his wealth and only keeps 10% for himself. He lives on 10%. He does the reverse tide, which I think is a remarkable thing. But he sat there and said, pastors, you don't know what you're missing. You don't know what you're missing if you're not increasing your tithe by 1% every year. And so I took that and I went to my wife, and I said, Jenny, uh, can we increase our tide by 1% every single year? Rick said, it's going to change our lives. <laughs> she said, okay. And so we've been doing it every year, and so we do the math. We're at 22%. Next year, my daughter, Christina, is going to college. We'll be at 23%. When Kayla goes to college, we'll be at 27%, and when Christian goes to college, we'll be at 29%. parents who have kids in college, you know it ain't cheap, it's expensive. Every year at the end, we get together and we talk a little bit about finances. And I'm really ashamed to admit it, but I said to her, I said, being that Christina is going to college next year, and that we just have to get ready, and how are we going to put three kids to college? Impossible. I said, do you think it's okay for us to just go back to 10%? I'm ashamed to share that with you. And you know what she said? She said, no. Why do you want to rob from God? Why do you want to rob from us? You see, what does she know that I've forgotten? She knows how much of a blessing our life has been since we started giving every single year and increased that giving. She knew the blessing and the grace that we've been receiving. Now, we may not have a ton of money as a result of it, but you know what we have? We have a ton of love in our family. You know, my kids still like me. We went to go watch a movie yesterday as a family. It was like the highlight for their week. We're going to go watch a movie together as a family. My daughter's going to be 17 this year, and she still likes her dad. <laughs> My son, he's a party animal. He loves to go hang out with his friends every single day. He went to his friends. They went. They went to some place in Allendale, I forget what it was, but they did trampolines and stuff. And so he was going to meet us at the theater, perhaps, or just come home at an earlier time. And I just said, I said, you know, I don't know if, if Christian's going to like this movie, Greatest Showman. I said, "You know, why don't we just ask if he just wants to hang out with his friend?" And I thought he was definitely going to say yes. My wife calls him and says, "Hey, do you want to just go to Matthew's house and hang out with him and we'll just pick you up after the movie?" You know what he said? "No. I want to come and watch the movie with our family. That's God's grace, Metro. That's not because we're great parents. That's God's grace. You know, my marriage to my wife, it ain't perfect, we have our issues, but do you know my marriage is like a big, strong oak tree? And on a hot summer day, when I feel like I'm being burned by the rays and the heat of the sun, I can lean under this tree, and I can draw strength from its shade. Do you know we've never fought about money since we started doing this? And you know money is the greatest wedge that divides a relationship. Do you know we used to fight even about how much toilet paper I used? That's how much we fought about money back in the day. She used to yell at me for using too much toilet paper. She says, "We've got to save money." <laughs> Serious. You see, what my wife knew that I'd forgotten was, why would we rob God, but why would we rob ourselves the joy of what we have today? We have a family that still loves us very much. We have a marriage that we still see each other and we can smile and enjoy being around each other. That we can actually come home and be excited to be with one another. That we don't have to live with the pressures of this world and try to, like, force our kids. Because, you know, PK kids get really messed up. We don't have to say, you got to be super spiritual in front of these people. Because if they start seeing that you're not, oh, my goodness. Start reading that Bible. (laughs) Start memorizing texts. No, they could be who they are. And look—if if you critique me and how I raise my kids, or you critique my wife, we're okay with that. Because what keeps us together is our love for one another. You see, I know without a shadow of a doubt, God's going to provide for us when my kids go to college. That's not even a question. But the thing that I missed, that I almost missed, that I still think about today, I don't know, but I thought money was more important than God. I thought that living outside of his grace at times was better so that I could pay for some bills maybe. That that thought entering my mind, I still get convicted by it till this day because it's so easy to believe that. What's holding you back from giving today? What's holding you back from having weight in your game? Listen, I want to encourage you, please, sit down with some rich people, some multi-millionaires, and ask them this one poignant question, millionaires who are Christians. And ask them, does money really bring joy to your life? Every single one of them, without fail, will tell you, I promise you, they will say, no, it doesn't. So why are you living for that stuff? Why is it holding you back from being generous? If anything we learn in this passage is simply this, no one is too poor to give and have weight to their giving to God. What's holding you back today? Why would you deprive yourself of bathing and soaking in the ministry of God's grace for your life? Why won't you confess your sins? Why won't you do battle with your pride today? Why? My hope is that you'll begin to do battle with these things and you will know the power of what it means to declare your God, your Lord, Jesus as your Lord. And you will be able to receive the grace of God upon your life not in scarce amounts but in abundance. And so may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Let's pray.